Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about phenomenology. Uh, Full disclosure, I had no idea what this word meant or what it even had to do with liturgy before this conversation, but per the usual, Dennis and Chris just blow my mind with some really amazing conversation. So without further ado, episode 24 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Phenomena. Do, 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 do. Phenomena. Do, 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 do. Phenomena. Phenomenologist, that's like you're a, a study a studier of the feminine? Fem feminine. It's about being a phenomenal liturgist. Phenomenal. <laughs> wow. But seriously, what does it mean? You're a phenom. Phenomenology. Phenomenology. The, uh, a study of the phenomenal. Study of the phenomena. Phenomena. That so, like, which, so like the people in X-Files. Uh, not uh, necessarily, uh, well, not extraterrestrial in that way, but oh, supernatural. Okay. Superterrestrial. Superterrestrial. <laughs> Scully will never believe in the phenomenological right. approach. The phenomena is that which shows itself to itself and then to others. And I was reminded of this on a recent uh, podcast when we were talking about, you know, you get this uh, liberal arts degree, in my case, philosophy degree, and you hope someday you can use it again. And there was an occasion to talk about Plato and Aristotle, and I hope I did it. I, d- I did my professor's justice. Mm-hmm. But that reminded me of uh, phenomenology, which is kind of a uh, kind of a foot in the Platonic world and a foot in the uh, Aristotelian world. And our St. John Paul II is... Uh, characterized as this type of philosopher. He is a phenomenologist uh, of the personalist stripe. He's a personalist phenomenologist who became a liturgist. You've lost me already, but where are we going? (laughs) Explain this to us. Explain. All right. So John Paul II, you know, we've looked at it in past podcasts about uh, uh, how the catechism understands what the liturgy is, primarily Mm -hmm. about our participation in the Paschal Mystery. We looked, uh, or we talked in one podcast about... um, uh, Sacrosanctum Contilium's treatment of uh, the liturgy, which is eschatological, <laughs> pneumatological. It's Christological. Oh, it's the that too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the action of Christ, the High Priest. Now uh, you know how I feel, Dennis. Every <laughs> episode, if you ask the right question, you get the right. Well, you answer. were daydreaming a little bit. I wanted to bring you back to uh, uh, ter- terra firma. Liturgy, the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. Yes. So this yes. ideal thing, far, far away, that somehow we encounter as mm. well. Mm. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI described the liturgy as uh, writing our relationship through Jesus to God. So it's right relationship with God and others. And John Paul II, uh, while he obviously wouldn't dismiss any of those, he gives a little bit different uh, perspective on what the liturgy is that maybe can help uh, make our liturgical understanding even that much more. And his is the phenomenological, um, I'd say description, because phenomenologists are not ones to define things. They don't like definitions. Right? Well, I know, they like, definitely. You know, this is a word I've heard many times and even started to read 
Sokolowski's book on it. And I need a reminder. Tell me, what is yeah. what is phenomenology about? Well, phenomenology is about uh, describing the phenomena. And what a phenomena is, is a thing as it exists in real life. So, for example, if you were to ask a, a good Thomist, you know, um, Dennis, what is Jesse? He's a... Boy, I want to hear his answer. Hold on. <laughs> a slightly <laughs> annoying version of... This is a bad example. Uh, well, why wouldn't you say who is Jesse? Why am I a what and not a who? Come on. Well, now you're starting to get somewhere. Okay. Uh, a, a rational animal. Okay, so that's a Thomistic demi- Sometimes, uh, yeah. de- ah. definition. Of, I meant the rational of, of a man. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, but a phenomenologist would say, no, he's not. He's not a rational animal. He's uh, he's Jesse. He's from Aurora, Illinois, and he's married to to Kimberly, and they have a daughter, Agnes, and he likes the the Chicago Cubs, and he went to school in Loris, and all these things. That's who Jesse is. He's, he's not. A, right, now I am on the grid because right. of you. Right. Now, right. Right. His telephone number is <laughs> uh, just a collection of my sense experiences of him and what I've learned of the phenomena of the Jesse phenomena. Oh man! Okay, so rational animal is this kind of abstract thing, but the phenomena is something that is real and on the ground. It's not an abstraction. And so the uh, early phenomenologist, the, the father of phenomenology, was uh, Edmund Husserl. Mm-hmm. And his uh, here's your bonus question: Who was his best, most favorite student? Some say that's newly canonized saint, Saint Teresa Benedicta. Edith, really, Edith of the Stein, cross, yes, yes, was a student of uh, Edmund Husserl's. Wow, yeah, along with uh, Martin Heidegger, who was uh, um, his uh, least favorite student. <laughs> well, and, he's on a different end of the spectrum. Oh, from uh, I, I have no uh, idea. Edith I was just Stein. making a joke, but and, yeah. and as yeah. I understand it, they're reacting to the legacy of Descartes and Kant, right? That we can't really trust sense phenomena to reveal the truth of things to us, right? Yeah, they are. Well, uh, what uh, Husserl was initially, uh, I think, a mathematician, right? And in math, everything is black and white. There's none of this confusing middle ground. Well, after uh, Descartes and all of the skepticism happened before Descartes, uh, everything was so sure, unsure of of everything, right? So how is it that you can get back to uh, terra firma and start to think again and come to some uh, reasonable conclusions? Because a good Thomist would say, well, there's a thing. I have an image of that thing in my head. Therefore, I know the thing. And then they started saying, well, what if you're in a dream? What if you're on drugs? What if you're having hallucinations? Maybe you can't trust your experience of that thing. And so they had to figure out, can you trust your sense experience or not? Right. And the Catholic finally came up with a, an answer to this. Yeah, so what's the answer? Yeah, well, I'm curious yeah, no, again, Well, the philosophical school says, no, 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 the, 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 the grounding of truth is in your head. So Plato, right? Uh, everything you see out there is a delusion. You have to get back to the ideas in your head. Or someone like Descartes. What is, uh, how does, what's Descartes' famous line? I think therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. So it's all about him or Kant and his uh, moral philosophy, you know, always act in such a way that your personal maxim could be applied universally. There's a real paraphrase. Get a C for that in the philosophy school. But the point is, it's all about you and what's in your head versus, say, this other camp like uh, Hume or uh, Locke or Aristotle where everything's out, out there. That's the ground of reality. What the phenomena does is kind of a meeting ground between those two things. The so best it, of both worlds. Exactly. It okay. has something to do with the real world out there, but it's not uh, completely uh, apart from your mind. You, the mind is bringing something to this too. And so the phenomena has a little bit of the mind and a little bit of the world out there, and that's the proper starting place to do some philosophy or some personalism. And you can see if you don't trust sense experience how that would just decimate liturgical expression, right? Because if you're 
can't rely on all the things of the senses in liturgy to reveal something of the truth to you, then they just kind of fall flat. We don't need those things. And it can become whatever my subjective experience in the moment is. That's my truth is when I have an emotional response to God or I feel God breaking in in some emotional way. And then liturgy kind of becomes uh, much more about an internal expression outward. But then the opposite is is equally as, I think, damaging to liturgy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's just a, a set of ceremonies and you don't have any response at all, then that's right. not, not really formative. So either. it makes sense that we have this bridge or this hybrid understanding to, to start with. Right, and this is kind of the context, at least as I see it, that John Paul brings to his understanding of the liturgy, right? So, so what's know, phenomenology? So phenomenology is, <laughs> is the Wait, phenomena. We still, we still haven't answered this? <laughs> it's the study of phenomena. Of phenomena, right, which isn't simply mental and it isn't simply the study external. Of, wait, the study of what? The phenomena and the phenomena. That's the last time. <laughs> okay, we'll sorry. That. Okay, so it's the study of the phenomena to get to to truth. All right, and so um, how John Paul would describe, for example, the liturgy. See, phenomena phenomenologists don't like to define things; they describe things because the phenomena are not things to be defined; they're things to be described. Right? Experienced. Experience. Right. It's in real life. So one of the books that John Paul wrote before becoming Pope was called the acting person. You know, a thing is insofar as it is an act and by its actions, by its phenomena, that's how you come to know uh, the thing. Remember, uh, Monsignor Manny would use this uh, example. You know, there's, you have the couple, the man and the wife, and they're having uh, uh, problems in their marriage. And the wife says, but you never tell me that you love me. And the husband says, but you know that I love you. And the wife says, yeah, but you never tell me that you love me. This is an example of that, is that, you know, the, the phenomena, the, the, the truth of love is expressed in the phenomena, the phenomena of love and its expression. So let's take this now to the liturgy. So this is John Paul's kind of philosophical mindset. And what he kind of along this acting person sort of way, he would describe the liturgy as the outstanding moment of encounter with the living Jesus Christ. Right. So what the liturgy is, is this living, breathing encounter with Another living, breathing person, Jesus Christ. Okay, and that kind of defies uh, definition, but this is in fact what happens, is coming to encounter Jesus Christ. And I imagine that Ars Celebrandi would fit right in here, right? If you're going to encounter Christ, the phenomena of Christ, you have to be able to experience the sacramental expression of that reality. But, right, and so what, he'll, what, what he will say is that when the liturgy goes bad, is the truth of the liturgy, who is Christ, is cast in shadows or it's obscured in some way and if you can't uh, you're not encountering the true phenomena of jesus then i know the perfect example of this you tell me if i'm right time for the responsorial psalm and the cantor gets up spreads her arms out wide and sings like a broadway singer look at me and she is no longer invisible to the text but the text becomes invisible to her external expression that is one of a myriad of examples that's we pretty deep then yeah pretty this, deep, well this yeah. happens a lot you know these musicians come out of music school and they're taught to sing opera and to be performers they're not taught to be revealers of invisible realities and let themselves get out of the way and so they obscure often the meaning of the word and all you are is looking at this person performing rather than uh participating in the effectiveness of those but they shouldn't wear an outfit that's too revealing well, precisely for the same <laughs> for the same reason. So what the liturgy does, whether it's the cantor or the priest or the servers or the architecture or the the music, the text, the pews, whatever it is, they're moments of encounter with n- not the particular architect or that particular ca- cantor or that particular priest that who's serving that who's presiding that morning. They're encounters with Jesus Christ, and so what the liturgy does 
is the means to reveal the person of Jesus Christ uh, to those who are participating. And now, if you've read a lot of John Paul II, this word encounter comes up everywhere. And it's the context, really, of the new evangelization. All evangelization, whether it's new or old, begins with this encounter. I'm a fan of old evangelization. Old-time evangelization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he he gives a number of examples of, he says, if you want to know how to evangelize today, look to the world's greatest evangelizer. In other words, Jesus. And Mm -hmm. you see how he did it. And what John Paul sees as discernible in in the gospel is kind of this threefold pattern. And it always begins with an encounter with Jesus Christ. Right. It, secondly, it leads to a uh, to to a conversion, and thirdly, it leads to this almost irresistible desire to go out and proclaim the good news. Right. And so he likes this example of uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. So it says at the beginning of this passage, Jesus was going through this Samaritan town, and he was planning to pass through. But he goes through, and Zacchaeus, the tree hugger. Right. Why? Why was he a tree hugger? Because uh, he couldn't see. He was so he could, short. He was short in stature, yeah. and he wanted to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. In order to do that, he climbs up this tree. So Jesus comes, and he says, Zacchaeus, uh, I need to stay at your house tonight. Now, notice that in the beginning, he wasn't planning to stay at all. He was going to pass through the town. But he says to Zacchaeus, I need to stay at your house. Well, Zacchaeus has kind of a conversion. and It says, with joy, he hurries down the tree and welcomes Jesus into his house with joy. This is the second step, this kind of conversion. And the third part, all the townspeople start to complain because, you know, does this Jesus know who Zacchaeus is? He's been cheating us of our money all this time. And Zacchaeus says something like, to all of those I've cheated, I'll pay back fourfold and I'll give away half of my possessions to the poor. So this encounter, this conversion, this action uh, is the, the paradigm of good old-fashioned evangelization or of new evangelization. So new evangelization is this new encounter with a person of Jesus Christ. You could imagine this happening liturgically. Someone who doesn't really know Christianity just walks into a beautiful church and there's beautiful music and there's some mystic, mystical seeming action and they say, I don't know what this is, but I've encountered it now and I, I want this. I'm going to go figure this out. And then they act. So there's this encounter, conversion, and act. Right. And so a part of the, 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 the work of the church is to help people, help lead people to this encounter with Christ. Through phenomenology. Well, Phenomen- he is, see, it's, uh, again, it's not, uh, um, John Paul II, we would write an encyclical, right? It wasn't a, a brief logical treatise on, uh, you know, demonstrating through syllogism the truth of the faith, right? Think, for example, of one of the most significant encyclicals of, this, uh, of, of last year, was a, the, the last century, rather, it was Humanae Vitae, right? It's 15 pages long. Mm-hmm. Okay. Man is a rational animal. This is contrary. Contraception is uh, contrary to you know the nature of man. The conclusion, uh, roughly, is that you know this is not something suitable to human nature. Okay. John Paul II, the phenomenologist, will describe okay, the 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 consequences, for example, of something like uh, contraception or anything like that. Um, so the phenomena of Jesus is encountered in in all things in the church. But couldn't you say the same thing about the typical scholastic? Sacramental worldview, you encounter things sacramentally and you have an experience and you turn to the Lord. How I had the same exact thought in the exact words. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. How is phenomenology, phenomenology different from that? I don't think it is. I think for the medievals, uh, see, what happened is there was so much skepticism on what you perceived. Okay, so you had to, what, what the medievals could presume as an authentic sense experience became uh, inadmissible as evidence to someone who is uh, someone like maybe a Kant or a. Um, uh, or a Descartes, where you know, 
you couldn't trust all that. You had to start from some voice inside the self, this giant turn to the self. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so I don't, to my mind, for whatever that's worth, uh, I don't see that there is a great uh, a difference between the medieval. Well, probably phenomenologists would take into account the subjective response. Of it has the viewer, to. Whereas a scholastic might say, well, that's the reality. If you don't get it, you know, learn mm-hmm. how. Mm-hmm. Where now we would say, okay, yeah, there is a subjective response to this, and can those things be yeah. reconciled? Yeah. And so, yeah, for the for this. Uh, for, for his papacy, John Paul II, it, 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 it accounted for all of those things. And so it was bringing people to an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, okay, who's not an abstract idea. This, was, this is the great, it's so good, I, I wish I had memorized it. Deus Caritas Est, Pope Benedict XVI's first encyclical, okay, he says that Christianity is not the result of some ethical choice or lofty idea, Right. Rather, it's the result of an encounter with a person, Jesus Christ, who gives life a new horizon and new meaning. I mean, that's that's in a certain sense, very phenomenological. Okay, it's not an ascent to some abstraction. It's coming to know a person. So, so much of John Paul II's papacy was, all right, well, how can we introduce people to the person of Jesus? Not win them over necessarily by a logical argument, okay, or get their sentiments so moved that they'll have some attraction. But how do you how do you introduce Jesus to the men and women of this age? Right. So someone experiences you loving them first. There's an experience of Christ, and then they might be disposed to listen to you because they know you're not out to force them into something. It's not a threat to their dignity or personal autonomy. It's well, somebody loves me. There must be something good there. I want to know. No. Yeah, yeah somebody. That's I mean, it, and that's the encounter that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You, you remember Father Tony Biko, a former uh, student of the Liturgical Institute who passed away uh, some years ago. He would, uh, he would tell me this story uh, around the lunch table. He would say, you know, I love being here on campus uh, and talking to the seminarians. And he says, when the seminarians will start to drift away, and it's just me, Father Biko, and one of the seminarians, he'll say, I'll ask him, I'll say, tell me about Jesus. And he says, uh, kind of this dumbfounded look, and they'll respond, well, well you know, Jesus is the, you know, the second person of the Trinity, and uh, through the hypostatic union, he's one person in two complete natures. You know, the Council of Chalcedon said, and Father Biko says, no, 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 no. Tell me about the person of Jesus. Not just about him, but tell me who he is. Okay? And as he's describing this to me, I'm thinking, not, oh, those silly seminarians can't believe this. <laughs> I hope he doesn't ask me this question. <laughs> because I know lots of, uh, I know what the catechism says about Jesus. I know a lot of facts and theological uh, elements of the councils and whatnot. And those are important. But it's not the same thing as this face-to-face intimacy, this heart-to-heart relationship with a person of Jesus. And is that is that primary? Is that what Pope John Paul II said? Yes. Says? Okay. Right. So let's take this example. Uh, he, we celebrated in the papacy of John Paul II, the year of the rosary. And what, what, what's, what was one of the fruits of the year of the rosary? The new mysteries. Right. Right. So oh, imagine, yeah, the luminous mysteries. right. So imagine how you'd pray the rosary. You're too young for this probably, Jesse, but before to the, pray the rosary before oh. the, uh, in the time before the year of, you know, uh, who's not rosary? too young for this. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. Kevin. do you remember yeah. this, Kevin? <laughs> Is when you'd pray the rosary before, you'd begin with the uh, joyful mysteries that would go from the uh, Annunciation, the Visitation, the Birth of Jesus, the Presentation in the Temple, and the Finding of Jesus in the Temple, age 12. All right. And then the next day, you'd move on to the Sorrowful Mysteries, which begin with the 
Agony in the Agony Garden, in the garden and the scourging cranny yeah. with thorns. Right. So in this former way, I mean, what's missing from like the life of Christ? All of the encounters that he had with people. Pretty much a whole big chunk of the life. You go from when he was 12 yeah. years old in the temple to the agony in the garden. Right. So mm-hmm. what John Paul but then even And then even after that, the glorious. And the you're glorious like, mysteries, right? So yeah, you are. You're missing. Okay, you're missing a, a very substantial part. Right. Mm-hmm. So what the introduction of the luminous mysteries does is to, in a certain sense, flesh out the face of Jesus Christ so that when you pray the rosary, he describes praying the rosary as sitting at the school of Mary and learning to, uh, to see what Jesus looks like. You see, mm. this is the phenomenological flavor of the approach of John Paul II. It's not abstract theology. I mean, certainly he can do that, did do that, but for the people of today, it's about this encounter with the person. So you go to uh, the baptism and the wedding feast at Cana and Jesus. Preaching of the gospel. Right, the transfiguration. Which seems pretty Eucharist. important. That should be. <laughs> yeah, you know, why not? And so now when you pray all of these mysteries, uh, the 20 of them together, you come to a clearer luminous encounter with the living person of Jesus. Not an abstract thought, but a living person with Jesus. Now, this then is his, if we can apply this. In fact, um, maybe this would be a good place to, uh, to, uh, to mention this. Um, his encyclical on the Eucharist. He says, a Christian, uh, to contemplate Christ above all, being able to recognize him wherever he manifests himself in the many forms, but above all in the sacrament of his body and blood. A Christian community desirous of contemplating the face of Christ. He's always talking about the face of Christ because Jesus has a face. He's not simply. Yeah, we can just ask Veronica. Truth. He's got a face. He does. Very right. true. And when our face is Christ's face, people will respond to that. Yeah. This person it loves me and is not a threat to me. And that's the face of new evangelization, I would think. If you see the Christian faith as this thing that limits your ability to do what you want, as opposed to this thing that brings you to your higher potential, then you say, I don't want that. Don't tell me what to do. I mean, that's the modern response always to Christianity is stop telling me what I can't do, Mm -hmm. as opposed to here's an opportunity to be loved and to be glorified. This is what Father Barron, uh, I've heard him talk, Bishop Barron, would talk about God is not a being, but is being himself. And so he's not a competitive being, like where there's God, you have to give way. When God comes into contact with you, you become even better than you were ever meant to be before. And so he gives, Bishop Barron would give, and this is relevant here to our liturgical discussion. See, because when we come to celebrate the liturgy then, uh, it's, it's not, uses a ritual but it's not simply carrying out the ritual it follows rubrics but not simply obeying the rubrics it's a place where we come to encounter the living breathing jesus christ just in the same way or as in a real way as zacchaeus did two thousand years ago we come to encounter the same jesus in the liturgy this time through a sacramental medium whereas zacchaeus encountered christ face to face Face to face, and what this encounter does then, and so there, there, it seems to me there's two conclu- two principal conclusions from this liturgical understanding, this phenomenological liturgical understanding that John Paul has, is and Dennis, you touched upon this before, is that it behooves uh, the presider, the celebrant, the ministers, their job is to let the face of Christ radiate to the people in the assembly. Okay. And we do this by following uh, the norms, the rituals, the rubrics. There's it, more to it. It doesn't that. mean a big, giant, cheesy grin, right? Well, <laughs> if, if that's... Well, this is a good... Does that 
help me, the minister, the psalmist, become more present, or does it help Jesus to become more present? I look happy as Cantor. Well, that's, look at that's me, actually, look at you know, kind of where I would like to take this and, you know, ask a question about maybe going too far and focusing too much on that, because I think there are some people out there who want to make liturgy or the mass exactly what it was in Jesus's time and what it would have been like we we mentioned this a lot like a meal with friends you know and and encountering Christ in that way and so how do we know that that's not proper liturgy as opposed to you know what we know now because that's how those people encountered Christ Eschatology is my answer. <laughs> and that so, and Chris, that, what's your answer in one word? <laughs> that, that may very well may be the answer. I mean, the liturgy is never an historical uh, reenactment. I know, it's but we a, hear people say like, oh, that's the best way to encounter Christ is just to mimic what, you, and, and people throw this out a lot, like, you know, what, what would Jesus do? Or like, how would he act? Or what would it have looked like? Or what would Jesus have done in this situation? And oftentimes people are talking about that that encounter in a historical sense or, yeah. you know, the person of Christ. What would but, Jesus do? Bracelets. That's right. That's right there. But yeah. but I think the eschatology, the eschaton, like what you said, I mean, that's that's what's revealed to us right. even so beyond that. Better than WWJD bracelet is what does the church allow us to encounter about but our own? That's too many letters. Well, well, I know. We, 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 live, we, live, we live in a soundbite world. <laughs> Well, one thing that John Paul would say is that the liturgy is not the only place where you can encounter Jesus today. It's one of the places, and it's the, as he says in his description, is the most outstanding place of of encounter with Christ. But all of his papacy is describing other places of encounter. Jesus can be encountered in the Word. Jesus can be encountered in the poor, right? So St. Jerome would say, uh, ignorance of the scriptures Scriptures is ignorance of Christ because it's an occasion to counter Christ. Uh, uh, St. Mother Teresa would she loved the poor principally because Jesus is present in the poor. In loving the poor, she's encountering not simply them, but God as well. We talked about the rosary. All of these places are uh, occasions to encounter Jesus Christ. So just so the just because the liturgy may not be according to my taste doesn't mean I'm somehow um, that's I'm unable to encounter Christ that way. The, the, the all of his uh, so much of his papacy was showing the men and women of today where they can renew their encounter with the living Jesus Christ. And the living Jesus Christ is not the guy necessarily alone walking around the Sea of Galilee. He's the cosmic, eternal, eschatological Christ who's been glorified, he's been resurrected, who invites us to share in his resurrection, not just to share in his archaic costumes from the first century. Mm-hmm. And so the liturgy will always have that quality of anticipating the heavenly future. And if you forget that part, then it becomes kind of an antiquarian reproduction of a, of a school play. Oh, Jesus did mm-hmm. this, so we should do that. As opposed to Jesus is doing this now eternally at the right hand of God, and he's asking us to do that as well. Do you remember the Gardini podcast uh, some time ago? We talked about the, he was talking about the two temperaments and there, there was a very, um, uh, I don't mean. The, oh, the subjective and the. Yeah, the subjective or uh, I was, I was going to say mundane, not oh, in okay. the pejorative sense, but yeah, kind, of, kind of earthly. And, mm-hmm. and people would say, you know, I, if, I would give anything if I could just be there 2000 years yes, ago. To I was hear thinking about that when Jesus we were talking about talk. this. And Gardini's point was well, that was 33 years out of eternity that you're, it's a little bit of a myopic uh, vision to trade it all in for that. I mean, Jesus is talking today. Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I mean, he's encountered today. You don't have to 
travel back in time 2,000 years to encounter him, St. Leo the Great would say, what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his sacraments. He's still there. And so this is a part of John Paul II's liturgical work is helping people to see, encounter, live, meet, be transformed by Jesus who's present in the liturgy. Every sick person who encountered Mother Teresa encountered Christ through her, sacramentally mediated. Yeah. So what, the, what the, all of these actions do, and in this case the liturgy does, is it, it portrays the person of Christ in his luminous face, Jesus, uh, the transfigured Jesus, to the world. The other key point that I think is a result of, of John Paul's phenomenological approach to this is helping people to learn how to see. And this is a point we've talked about uh, before, too, is uh, St. Thomas say, Dennis, uh, that which is received is received according to the mode or the, the mind of the receiver. And so it's how is it, you know, just like when you look at a beautiful work of art, how is it that I can see that and learn to appreciate it? Uh, how is it that we can learn to see because not everybody goes to the liturgy and says, well, I don't see Jesus there. Mm-hmm. Hey, part of it could be because uh, he's not being... Because they haven't listened to this podcast. <laughs> Duh. Part of it could be because uh, uh, those who serve the liturgy can do it in a more radiant way that points less to themselves, more to Christ. But second of all, is that people uh, learn to... We all need to learn how to encounter Christ in these signs and symbols as well. Right. In the iconic tradition, the Eastern tradition of making icons, the saints almost never smile. But they also don't look angry. They if they have a hint of, of joy in their eyes, and they might have the tiniest little shadow at the corners of their mouths to show that they're delightfully joyful. But if you ever saw an icon with a big, cheesy Hollywood grin, you'd be like, man, <laughs> something's not right about that. Because they're not expressing their own earthly passions at the height of their you know excitement. They have this completely glorified and completely calmed and and yet a uh, completely ecstatic experience of huh. God. I'm, that's amazing. I never and would have thought about Everything that. liturgically should be that way too. And every time, you know, there's this sort of stereotypical sort of 60s hippie priest who's in the burlap vestments and is all buddy-buddy with everybody. And people, oh, I like Father so-and-so. And then there's the stereotypical kind of uptight traditional priest and all the right silk mm-hmm. vestments and never smiles and he's just a mean, crouchy old guy. Imagine if you could merge those two, right? And so... Yep. The priest puts on the fullness of glorified redemption in the liturgy and at the same time has a controlled iconic expression of delight and joy in the God who saved us. Why can't we bring those two together? That's the liturgical expression. What you're describing there, Dennis, is, uh, is a phenomena. Okay? In this case, uh, in the person of the priest, what is he showing? You know, uh, who? Whom is he showing? Mm, to okay? whom? Yeah, to whom? Oh, un- <laughs> <laughs> I think you were right the first time. Yeah. All right. And the idea is is that uh, uh, he should be showing Jesus Christ. In, in his glory. In, right. In his humanity. In his divinity. In his love. In his joy. In his suffering. In his offering. In his sacrifice. All of those things. So I get, I'm it's getting easy, right? half, half serious, half uh, cheesy, right? That's no what, cheese. Oh, You're no cheese. taking the best of both temperaments. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Because when he does that, that means that the people in the assembly are able to encounter, you know, not Father Steve or whatever, whoever yeah, he is. Especially not Father Steve. Is, uh, you uh, know who you are, Father Steve. <laughs> we are talking about you. He's able to, uh, th- those in the assembly are able to encounter Jesus Christ. And this is the, the, the philosophical grounding, uh, as I see it, of John Paul II's papacy and here uh, as his understanding of the liturgy, coming to encounter the person of Jesus. And what's always the response to Christ. Yes. 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 Oh, I would do that. oh man. 
I was I, thinking something else, but that, I good, remember okay, the same Father Tony Bico you were talking about. You know, when he was a new pastor, I said, "Oh, I've heard the rule, and then your new pastor, you come to a new church, you're not supposed to change anything for a year because you know you want to learn what people are doing." He said, "Well, that's right," but he said, "My pattern is I love my people until they love me, and they know that I love them." And then when I make changes, they'll know it's because I love them. And Which not. usually takes about a year. Well, that's what he said, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you're a cranky old priest and you wait a year and then make a bunch of arbitrary decisions and people don't love you, they're still not going to like it. But if mm-hmm. they know you love them, so like, a, you know, a child and his father, if they think their father's abusive, all they hear and feel is he hates me, he hurts me. But if a father loves them and they know that, they oh, yeah, he, you know, I'll do this because he's my father and he loves me. They might not say it, but that's what they mean. Which so, takes longer than a year. Usually, yeah. yeah. But if people know they're loved because Christ is present to them, then they say yes. Hopefully, they say yes. All right. Well, this conversation is, dare I say, it has been phenomenal, right? Couldn't see that one coming. Yeah. I mean, listen, I got to make it fun somehow. But all right. Uh, I did not know that we were going to talk this long about this topic. And I, admittedly, I got lost a few times, but... But you, you you honed it in. That was good. All right. Uh, I think it's time for an email question from a listener. If there's time. <laughs> oh, there's time. We'll make time. Maybe we'll make Kevin answer the email question this week. Kevin, get over yeah. here. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, not just ritual anthropology, but really discovering the mystery of prayer and at the same time the depth of the tradition, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a liturgy question from Chris Carstens of Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin. And Chris Carstens has a question. Uh, Chris, what's your question? Uh, my question uh, this week, is, or Chris's question, is, oh, right. uh, <laughs> is about uh, church floors. I mean, there's a lot that you can look up on uh, altars and ambos and baptistries uh, and the rest, but what, what should a church floor look like, or is it? Is it even a question? Does it even matter what a church floor? And this like? is a because, question that you got from. Oh yeah. yeah, it's a very common question actually. Uh, what should the church floor look like? In the aisle, under the pews, in the narthex, in the sanctuary? Should it be carpet, wood, tile, marble, uh, or is it just inconsequential to and the so church building? To get the answer, where did you go? I went to the liturgy guy, uh, Dennis McNamara. All right, Dennis, and I'm here to answer, Chris. Here to help. Well, start with this supposition that every single thing in a church has a sacramental role to play. 
And that would be everything from the lights to the wall surface to the paint on the walls and the ceiling to the floor. And so if the church building is an image of the heavenly Jerusalem, then the floors of a church are the streets of the heavenly Jerusalem. What, you know, we talk about the, the streets paved with gold, which is uh, not about how much money you can make in a city. It's a reference to the heavenly Jerusalem where the streets are described as being gold clear as crystal. And gold in scriptural terms and even in natural terms is always something that doesn't tarnish. It has a radiance and a reflectivity that's indicated, um, that indicates the glory of eschatological perfection. So the, the question is, what would the floor of a church be? It's the streets of heaven. What would the streets of heaven look like? Gold, crystal, gems, these are all the language, uh, the words that the church uses. And in the tradition, you see church floors often made of different pieces of stone, different colors, different patterns. There's something called cosmetesque work, which you see all these swirling patterns. Of oh, little, I was little just going to ask about that. Stone. Yeah, right. Okay. right, that's as if the floors are made of gems. Okay. And geometric patterns is the new harmony brought to everything. So not every parish can afford a floor made of lots of complicated marble. Every now and then you'd see a church that renovates and they buy a bunch of 12 inch by 12 inch white marble tiles and they just you know, put them down the aisle. And suddenly it looks kind of like a wedding hall instead of a church. Even though it's marble, it's not really very ecclesiastical. So the floor needs to have ecclesiastical character primarily, which is why carpeting often doesn't work well in a church. Because the kind of carpet you need to have a thousand people a weekend walking across it would be this kind of industrial, really tough carpet, which is the cheapest and ugliest possible carpet, which is therefore the least worthy of God and the least ecclesiastical. So again, it's one of those things where there's not one answer, but it shouldn't look domestic. It shouldn't look like something that you could see in a rich person's kitchen, uh, for instance. It should have an ecclesiastical character, be gem-like, radiant, and hierarchically arranged so that the areas that are most important would have the best materials, say the sanctuary, the area around the altar, the richest um, patterns of design, and then the aisles that lead to the sanctuary, which are the processional paths of walking down the streets of the heavenly Jerusalem to meet the Savior, would have a certain dignity compared to you know, the bathroom floors in the, in the narthex, for instance, or under the pews. So think about sacramentally, what is it? It's my path to Jesus. Or sacramentally, what is it? It's the place where Jesus is reigning. That floor would have the richest pattern, the, the best material, the most color, and then everything else would work its way down from there. And uh, we, you talked about carpet, you talked about stone. I often see wood flooring as, uh, you know, where does that play? Well, wood is okay. I mean, some really beautiful churches can have complex wood patterns. Personally, I find wood, unless, you know, it's a little country church and that's the best they can do, wood floors tend to either look like someone's living room or a gymnasium if mm -hmm. you're not careful. And so St. John Cantius Church in Chicago, for instance, has these beautiful uh, inset patterns of um, very complicated wood um, images with different colors. And you would never confuse that with a gymnasium. But that is a very rare uh, exception. Mm -hmm. So the challenge would be, does it have ecclesiastical character? And if it does, then it's fine. Is it worthy of the liturgy? Then it, if it does, then it's fine. And would you say that if someone was building a church... Um, and maybe they couldn't afford to have the whole floor being gem-like, radiant. Maybe having wood under the pews or maybe carpet in the, in the narthex, but having the aisle, if they could, have that gem-like marble or radiance or things like that. Sure. The places of highest importance would have the highest uh, status materials. There was a, there's a big parish in Chicago that the, the pastor a while back consulted about the center aisle because it was always carpeted. And he wanted to put carpet back. And so we actually found some beautiful um, high-level carpet that has all these patterns of vines and gem-like colors and flowers. 
it's the kind of stuff you often see in high-end hotels. So it's made to have a lot of foot traffic, but it's not just the institutional carpet that you see on your back porch when you have indoor-outdoor carpeting for your um, cookout. It is garden-like, radiant, gem-like, and worthy of that place, even though it's carpet. So mm-hmm. that's what really matters, not what it's made of, objectively speaking, but is it ecclesiastical and worthy of the, the sacrifice of the Mass? Because I think that the price and cost and all that stuff can be very intimidating for people working on renovating churches and things like that. But um, hopefully that answers your question, Chris. Did I answer your question, Chris? That's a great answer. Oh, I would right. have never, I, you know, I never would have thought. I, I knew, I, I suspected there's something more to it than uh, uh, just an afterthought. But there, there really is a lot of significance uh, in, in just what the floor looks like. All right. Well, uh, if you, like Chris, have a liturgy question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. God or bless. If you like Chris, you can email us. <laughs> if you don't like Chris, you can still we, email well, us. we can kick him off the podcast. All right. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.